scientists say phthalates are the most common chemicals we're exposed to on a daily and, you know, on an everyday basis. And most people, you know, haven't even heard of phthalates. I know your listeners probably have, but right. I mean, the word is bizarre. It's P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S. It's phthalate. So it's spelled ridiculous, right? It's a kind of a fancy chemistry spelling. And it's not even on a lot of people's radar, and yet we're being exposed every day to these things. Hormones essentially are defined as something that are secreted in one place and picked up by a receptor in another place in your body, right? Collective companies are putting phthalates into fragrances. So pregnant women, they found, are 167% higher phthalates in their urine if they use perfume. Because obviously our blood is aqueous, right? Our blood is like water. So if you put a hormone into our blood, it just floats on top, like testosterone, estrogen. So there's a protein called SHBG. It's sex hormone binding globulin. And... I call it the limo service of hormones because at least the sex hormones. You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on building optimal mental and physical performance into your life, visit naturalstacks.com. Ryan Muncy is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncy is the nutrition guy. Ryan Muncy's out there trying to make the world better for all of us. The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic. Ryan Muncy is my go-to guy. Ryan Muncy is the first guy I call. He's making people's lives better. Ryan Muncy's an innovator. All right. Happy Thursday, all you optimal performers. Welcome to another episode of the OPP. I'm your host, Ryan Muncy, and today we are joined by Dr. Anthony J. Anthony, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're really looking forward to this. Uh, for you guys listening, uh, if, if you've seen the title already, you know we're going to talk about some uh, environmental estrogens and, and some other things in our daily uh, environments that we want to try to avoid uh, so that we can optimize our health. Uh, before we get into all of that uh, with Dr. J, let's go through our usual uh, public service announcements. Uh, number one, uh, make sure you guys go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the video version of this. Uh, the blog post will also have links and resources, uh, things that you can follow up on and pursue on your own. I'm sure we will talk about a lot of things that you guys want to pursue um, on your own. Um, also, make sure you guys are telling your friends about the Optimal Performance Podcast. As we go through this today, if you hear information that you want to share with friends or family, do just that. Uh, share the link to this podcast with them. That's how we help more people. That's how we get the word out. Uh, so make sure you're sharing this. And go to iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. If we read your review on the air, we will hook you up with free Natural Stacks products. So I want to read one from right uh Read one right now, excuse me, from David B. Uh, says, Ryan, what a fantastic podcast. Very informative. Keep up the super work. This was a note sent to me on social media about the David Limaker episode, which was episode 94. If you guys haven't heard that one, go back and make sure you check that one out. Um, and that's it for the public service announcements. So for today's episode, like we said, our guest is Dr. Anthony J. Um, 
Dr. Anthony is uh, he's the founder of the International Medical Research Collaborative. He has studied immunology and biochemistry, uh, works in the fields uh, of, or has done work in the fields of HIV, Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular research. He's the author of the book, Estrogeneration, How Estrogenics Are Making You Fat, Sick, and Infertile. Um, his focus is on prevention of many of today's common issues, and that's going to be our focus for this podcast today. How do we prevent these things from negatively impacting us, uh, as opposed to waiting until it's too late and then treating symptoms? Um, you know, and again, I, I want to reiterate to you guys uh, listening. You know, our, our focus here is always about reducing exposure. Um, you know, we're not trying to go Alex Jones uh, conspiracy theory on the podcast here. Uh, but we want you to know, we think you have a right to know the things that are in the environment, the things that you're being exposed to. Um, and, uh, and Anthony actually reached out to me uh, by Twitter uh, to set this up. So um, this is going to be really fun. And uh, Anthony and I will give you guys a great podcast. Anthony, I'm going to stop talking. I, I briefly read your bio. Um, sometimes I think those are a little bit boring. Um, you know, like we mentioned in the bio, and like many of our guests, you sort of became disenchanted with the traditional American medical system. You started looking at health from a preventative standpoint, uh, as opposed to treatment and pharmaceuticals. Um, what was the breaking point for you, uh, and how did you become so interested in environmental toxins specifically? As I went through my PhD, I had kids, actually. That was the first thing. There's probably about three things, right? For me, it wasn't just one big epiphany moment. It was kind of more of a gradual just realization. Okay. And so when I had my first kid, I was on my first year of my PhD program. And it was during midterms week. Of course, when I say I had my kid, I mean my wife had a kid. But right. it's still, it, it was right before my midterms. And I actually got C's on my midterms. And it, you know... It was kind of a disaster. I had to get A's on all my finals in my PhD in biochemistry, right? And which is not easy to do. So I pulled that off. But once you have kids, you start to realize, you know, like, for example, one of my kids is gluten sensitive. I mean, severely, not celiac, but it's, it's tremendous behavioral changes. She gets the puffy black bags under her eyes. Wow. And she's got some dairy issues and little things like that started to make me realize, you know, this is real. This isn't just people, you know, exaggerating, making exaggerated claims, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, the science is there, right? Like there's certain degrees of inflammation from certain food items. And so that was the first thing, just having kids. Uh, the second thing is my dad actually got cancer and he's a, he's a medical doctor. And, you know, just kind of growing up in the, in the conventional medical system where you know, these doctors look at symptoms and then they're just thinking about which drug do I give this person, right? They're not actually trying to identify the root cause of anything. They're just trying to essentially prescribe you a drug. And, you know, there's so much, so much wrong with that whole thought process. And even my dad, right? He gets cancer. And the first thing they do is they start talking chemo, right? Let's do chemo. And, you know, I talked to him and we kind of went through the process of getting a better, more specific, more precise treatment and, you know, working from diet prevention. So that's the second thing, just being in a medical environment and seeing essentially, you know, the way these doctors think, right? And then the third thing, as the president of this nonprofit, we rotate international medical students through hospitals. And again, it's just more exposure to this system that we have in America where the doctors are just thinking about symptoms 
and looking to prescribe a drug, not prevent, not get to the root cause of the problem. Okay. So uh, I just got to ask, I mean, how was your dad and, and what were some of the outcomes of, you know, the alternative methods that you guys took? Yeah. So, well, the biggest thing we did was we, we went with an antibody treatment. So rather than just killing any fast growing cell, which is what chemo does, right? We, uh, we went with a, an antibody called rituximab. And so that's a precise, uh, you know, antibody that binds that specific cell that has the cancer. He's doing a lot better. He was bedridden for about 12 years. And wow. this, just this past year, he's able to get on an airplane and come out to Boston and visit me for the first time. It was the first time he's been on an airplane in the last 12 years. So, you know, huge improvements. That's crazy. What kind of cancer was it? A B cell lymphoma. Wow. So even there, right? You, as a scientist, I have to say, okay, it's B cells, but is it, you know, pro B cell? Is it pre B cell? You know, there's different stages of the B cell. So you want to be real precise in your treatments. And, you know, that's not necessarily alternative, alternative medicine. This is, you know, obviously yeah, that's just being, like an antibody. Yeah. That's just being specific, not, you know, yeah. Uh, like you said, with chemo, where it's non-tissue specific, it's just, you know, wiping out everything. Uh, ex explain that um, for our listeners who may not know, you know, may not have a PhD in biochemistry and, and may not know pre-cell, pro-cell. Yeah, so your your immune cells are made in your bone marrow. And, you know, they're all there's all kinds of different immune cells and they come out in different maturity states. And I was eating lunch with the Nobel Prize winner. I've eaten lunch with three different ones. I've had the honor to eat lunch with some various people. And uh, one of them, actually, most of them, I always ask, okay, what are the new frontiers in science? What are some areas that we understand almost nothing about? And they all say the brain, and they say the immune system. And so, I mean, there's a lot we don't know about the immune system, but what we do know is there's different maturity states of these immune cells. So there's different proteins that are on some of the cells or whatever. I don't want to get too complicated, but essentially it's just, it's just a, a, a growth phase for these cells. You can get as complicated as you want. <laughs> if, if it's, if it's over our head, I'll, I'll help you kind of bring it back. But our, our listeners want as deep as we can go on science. So. Yeah, and we'll get, I think we should get there in terms of the artificial estrogens, especially. For sure. Uh, I got to know, when, when you have dinner with these Nobel Prize winners, are you picking up the tab? You're taking them out to lunch, right? <laughs> Heck no, I don't pick up the tab. <laughs> Neither do uh, they, but yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, so it, I think that's really fascinating. I mean, you know, that, that even those folks are saying that the, the new frontiers are brain and, and immune system. And, you know, we're starting to see more and more research is linking the two, um, you know, gut brain connection. You know, we know that we know that the, the gut is the first line of defense for the immune system. Um, you mentioned that immune cells are made in bone marrow, which, which is something that we never hear about when we talk about uh, bone broth or marrow as being a great food to eat. Is it as easy as, you know, eat bone broth and bone, bone marrow and you get a boost in uh, immune function? I mean, you, I think you do, but I don't know if it's that easy. You right. know I mean, for example, if you've got 10 problems with your diet and you're suppressing your immune system from artificial chemical exposures or whatever, you know, I mean, bone broth isn't going to, isn't going to overcome all those quote unquote sins. Right. Right. Or right. if you're not exercising and more importantly, probably if you're not sleeping. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you have a lot of other things dialed in, if you're healthy, it is going to, it is going to enhance your immune system. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, I, I'm just to wrap that thought up on your your father. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that he's doing better, and it's it's cool that you guys have been able to uh, you know see progress and see benefit in his quality of life by going outside the the confines of kind of quote unquote orthodoxy when it comes to to treatment and medicine. Um, That's right. And I didn't even I should probably throw in there also we've done a lot with his diet in terms of you know, re- at least reducing grains and gluten mm-hmm. and a lot of chemicals and things like that, just so your listeners know, because I didn't even really get there. Yeah. I mean, I, I figure that not to gloss over that because I realize it's very important, but I think that's something that our listeners would kind of expect that. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess to, to question it a little bit deeper and on the specifics, I mean, you cut out grains, obviously removing processed foods, chemicals, pesticides. Does that mean you're pretty much 99 to 100% organic, um, grass-fed, wild-caught, all that stuff. That's right, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, and just in the process of writing this book, right, Esther Generation, um, I got it here, I'll just show it to you. Um, beautiful. <laughs> it, it, it gave me, actually, a deeper understanding of some of these chemicals because people really don't realize, including myself, right, we don't realize how pervasive some of them are. In fact, phthalates... Uh, are said by scientists say phthalates are the most common chemicals we're exposed to on a daily and you know on an everyday basis and most people you know haven't even heard of phthalates I know your listeners probably have but right I mean the word is bizarre it's p-h-t-h-a-l-a-t-e-s it's phthalate so it's spelled ridiculous right it's a kind of a fancy chemistry spelling and it's not even on a lot of people's radar, and yet we're being exposed every day to these things. And, you know, we, you've sent me, and, and you and I have gone back and forth a little bit before we've recorded this. So, you know, for, for our listeners' sake, um, you know, we're, we're going to dive into quite a few of the common estrogens that, uh, that we're exposed to on a regular basis. So I guess now is as good a time as any to kind of move into that segment. Um, you know, let's, let's jump right in with these phthalates. Um, the, the most common source for these are, are plastics, right? That's right. Yeah, they're plastic uh, stabilizer, conditioner. You know, they enhance the properties of plastics. And, you know, they, they transfer easily out of plastics. I mean, that's a big problem with them. And mm-hmm. more fundamentally, they act like estrogen in your body. They're called estrogenics, which just basically means they act on your, the estrogen receptor. So that's the real health problem. And because hormones, you know, you throw those off and that's a fine tuned system and mm-hmm. low levels of hormones have a pretty strong, significant impact in your body. So everything that we're going to cover today, these, they're, they're all um, either synthetic estrogens or phytoestrogens or things that um, act on that estrogen receptor. So before we really dive into each of these um, compounds, just maybe give us like the, the high level view of how delicate and, and interconnected that hormone system is and, and how, you know, disruptions like this can, can cause issues that, you know, may or may not lead to cancer or certainly, you know, when, when corrected can help positively impact someone with cancer. Yeah, for sure. And we'll have to talk about some of the health problems, you know, sure. that arise from this, throwing this system out of whack, but First, the big picture, the panorama is that uh, hormones essentially are defined as something that are secreted in one place and picked up by a receptor in another place in your body, right? So, 
For example, leptin, right? People, a lot of people have heard of leptin. It inhibits your hunger. So that's secreted by fat cells and it actually acts on your brain. So you've got receptors in your brain that pick up that hormone and it tells your brain, yeah, I'm not hungry anymore, right? So that's one example. But the thing about leptin is it pretty much is brain specific. So, you know, that can go throughout the leptin protein hormone can go throughout your blood and, you know, say it goes on your tongue or in your muscles or whatever, it just kind of goes right by, right? It doesn't, there's nothing to pick it up. There's no receptors there to grab onto it. And so it doesn't have action in a lot of your body. But estrogen is unique because almost all the cells in your body have estrogen receptors. So in other words, it impacts your brain, it impacts your muscles, it impacts your testes, it impacts, right, all of these different organs because they all have that receptor. So they're they're ready to pick up that hormone. And so you put, whether it's artificial estrogen or natural estrogen, you know, you put that in your bloodstream and it's going to have kind of systemic mm-hmm. health problems. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's exactly what I was looking for. That That's a great kind of foundation for, for the rest of this. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll go through these one at a time, um, you know, so that our listeners know exactly what they want to avoid. Um, yeah. You know, we'll talk about the, uh, the, the estrogens themselves and then some of the sources, um, you know, so since we already kind of mentioned phthalates, let's, let's stick on uh, the ones that come from plastics. So within that kind of category, we have the phthalates, uh, BPA, BPS, probably everybody's heard of BPA um, just because you see all the cans and stuff now that say BPA free. Um, what are these three kind of what's, what's the origin and, and you know, what um, I, I see you're drinking out of glass. Always, yeah. <laughs> what, what are some uh, action items that we can do to avoid them, such as drinking out of glass? That's right. I've got mine yeah. too. So. Awesome, yeah. Yeah, stainless and glass for sure. And, you know, I mean, that's people recognize that BPA is bad, right? But a lot of people don't know it. it's bad because it acts like estrogen in your body. Mm-hmm. And that's just one example of something I'm trying to raise awareness of is, you know, there's this whole class of molecules, this whole category artificial estrogen. And here's the issue with BPA, right? So companies and a lot of states have tried to make, actually made it illegal, especially in children's products, Mm -hmm. because the federal government's not doing anything about it. And a lot of other countries, by the way, have made it illegal already. And that's kind of one of the things I point out in my book. I make a lot of contrast between, okay, the European Union says this, you know, says BPA should be illegal. And then the U.S. says it's fine. Right? And, and it's not just BPA. You go down the list and you, it starts to become real eye-opening. Mm-hmm. And, then, and we'll talk about that later. But, mm-hmm. uh, but the problem is when the companies are forced to you know, use something other than BPA, a lot of times they use BPS. And then they can still say it's BPA-free, but bisphenol S is almost identical to bisphenol A, and it, it's estrogenic. And I've got publications that say that, right? I mean, they even say it might be worse in terms of you know, the estrogenic impact on your body. And even if they make it BPA free, BPS free, whatever, there's other analogs you could add on to. But there's people still putting phthalates in a lot of the plastic. Yeah. So, so from a consumer standpoint, um, how would we know or feel comfortable or feel safe knowing that that something does not contain phthalates? And then like you said, if something is listed or, or marketed as BPA free, how do we know as a consumer that it's BPS free? That's right. Right now you can't. And I'm, I'm kind of trying to 
I'm trying to get companies to put estrogenic free on the label because that would be more broad and it would just say, okay, there's none of this in there. There's no alkyl phenols, there's no BPA, BPS, phthalates, all that stuff. Because that's what, it, that's what is happening, right? It's becoming tedious because they have to say paraben-free, phthalate-free, BPA-free. Collective companies are putting phthalates into fragrances. So pregnant women, they found, are 167% higher phthalates in their urine if they use perfume. So just we're finding phthalates in all kinds of fragrances. It's in plastics. And so you ask, well, what do you do about it, right? And most importantly, you don't want to heat your plastics, but people kind of already know that, I think. Mm -hmm. But even just storing things in plastic does have a lot of phthalate leachate. So, you know, it's, it's a health issue. It's a health hazard. And especially, and here's the most important point, when you have lipids, right, like oils and fats, and you're storing those in plastic, that's where you find the most leaching because hormones are hydrophobic, right? They're afraid of water. They're, they act like lipids. So if you put a bunch of estrogen in a glass of water, it's going to float on top of the water. So, you know, it has oil-like properties. And that actually brings up an important uh, kind of side point because obviously our blood is aqueous, right? Our blood is like water. So if you put a hormone into our blood, it just floats on top like testosterone, estrogen. So there's a protein called SHBG. It's sex hormone binding globulin. And I call it the limo service of hormones because at least the sex hormones, because that's how they get around. They have to bind this huge protein. They have to get onto it. And that gets, that allows them to be transported throughout the bloodstream. And, you know, that's the difference between bound testosterone or bound estrogen, right? And free testosterone or free estrogen. And these artificial estrogens interact with that same protein. They take the limo service, right? And that disrupts your testosterone and your natural estrogen, both the free levels and the bound levels. And I'm kind of getting, maybe getting ahead of myself because, right? But no, that's, that's I, fine. Yeah. I just wanted to bring up the point that these act like oil, right? They're hydrophobic. So if you put, if you have a plastic bottle with phthalates, and most of them do, and you put corn oil in there or whatever oil, even olive oil, you get a lot more transfer of the phthalates into the oil than you would if you just had water. And that becomes a huge issue when you do scientific studies because you have to ask yourself, right, was that study, which says oil is bad or whatever fat, right, they say it's bad, were they actually looking at the oil or were they measuring some side effect from the artificial estrogen? Yeah, so we will, that is something that we have lined up to talk about. Um, after we cover all these estrogens, we'll talk about some of this, this the spin and the bias on some of these studies. Right. Um, and, and you mentioned, you know, having uh, references and, and links for some of these articles. Um, for you guys listening, I, I will get uh, Anthony to send these to me. We will post links to all of these uh, on the blog post with the show notes so that if you guys want to see the science, you can see the studies and you can go down these rabbit holes for yourself. Um, uh, so let's, let's keep going through some of these. You, you mentioned perfumes. I know cosmetics. We touched on that on a few other episodes. We had um, uh, Jasmina from uh, Mother Dirt on a previous episode where we talked about skin biome and skincare. We've had Andy Nilo on from Alatura Naturals. Um, you know, so our audience is aware that you know, literally smearing these products onto your skin or spraying them onto your skin is bad because skin's our largest organ. Um, but but with, with cosmetics, I mean, we're talking things like soap, fragrance, sunscreens, even basically anything can be, if it's not like, you know, 
you just, you have to read the ingredients on all this stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, like I say, I would love to see companies just start saying estrogenic free because parabens are the big one that's found in fragrances on my top mm-hmm. 10 list of best mm-hmm. artificial estrogens, right? That's kind of how I categorize parabens. I just say they're the fragrance estrogenics because a lot of, because companies, they don't legally have to put all those ingredients on the label. They can put, they can use this term fragrance and just because it's proprietary, right? It might be a secret formula. They don't want to release it. And they can, and and trust me, they do. Not only can they, but they do put parabens in a lot of fragrance. You, you are speaking our language because if, if you've heard anything we say, you know, we're all about open source formulations. We hate proprietary blends and supplements, but, you know, especially uh, true in foods. I mean, or, or fragrances and cosmetics. I mean, in foods, you can say natural flavors. And I think that's like the third or fourth most commonly listed ingredient according to the FDA. And it's because it's a catch-all term for, for so many different things. And, and same as, uh, you know, if, if you're... Reading the ingredients on food or fragrance or anything, and, and you see a term that is, it looks good, but it's so vague, natural, natural fragrance or natural flavors. I mean, that can literally be anything. Um, yep. and, and, that's, and that's assuming, that's assuming the companies are being honest, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a scary, scary and, thing. And let me give you two just studies just to kind of back this up, right? Mm-hmm. So number one, polar bears in Northern Alaska have been found to have parabens in their livers and they've been finding whales have parabens in their fat tissue because your fat stores these estrogens, mm-hmm. right? Right. And I'll send you this study. Yeah. Um, which obviously kind of shocks people because it's, they're in Northern Alaska, right? I mean, yeah. and it's because it goes up the food chain, right? It ends up in the water supply. It ends up in the plankton, the minnows, what, et cetera, right up to the seals. Mm-hmm. And you've yeah. got the polar bears ending up with it. Well, and, and the shocking thing about that is, I mean, how far away they are from human civilization. I mean, a polar bear is yeah. not, it's not like it's, you know, uh, an animal that was found, you know, on the continental U.S., you know, near humans. Um, yeah, yeah. You, and, 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 right. and the same health problems apply, right? You talk about infertility, you talk about depression. I mean, it's hard to imagine polar bear with depression, but whatever, right? You talk about these the same pro- health problems, yeah. they end up in the animals, right? I mean, it's yeah. not human specific. And, and, yeah. and let me get that other study in really fast. So I said there's two studies. So mm-hmm. the other one that's kind of, I just got to throw it out there. It's, they just, a couple weeks ago, no, n- not even kidding, they came out with a study that showed how much urine is in a public swimming pool on average. And they found between eight and 20 gallons of urine. <laughs> okay. And, and the reason I bring that up is because they've, also found high levels of parabens in the public swimming pools to, a, to the point where they're saying it's concerning for children. They say, yeah, for adults, maybe it's, okay, it's probably okay, but obviously I don't think it's probably okay, but that's what the scientists are saying. Right. And because children obviously have a lower threshold for these, for the, their sensitivity is different for these hormone imbalances. Right. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing puberty at age nine instead of age 14 and things like that. Wow. Wow. Here's the sad thing is doctors are trying to redefine the age for puberty. They're trying to say the normal age range should be lowered rather than actually addressing the root cause of the problem to, to eliminate this huge, vast health problem we've created ourselves, right? So we changed the rules to, to make it no longer a problem. That's right. We've uh, done that kind of with testosterone, too. We're kind of lowering the, the recommended range as our culture, you know, the testosterone lowers. Just maybe we should bring it up again later, or maybe I should just talk about it right now, which it's, I really it's, like. It's, well, it's funny you mentioned testosterone because as you were giving that answer, that's exactly what popped into my head. And, and yep. we've talked about that on a few episodes, 
I think very, very early episodes, maybe even number one with John Romanello and Dr. Shields, Dr. Alexis Shields, a really early episode. We talked about, you know, with functional medicine and the difference between kind of normal ranges and then like thriving or optimal ranges. That's right. That's right. Um, but, it, but it's interesting, you know, as you're talking about polar bears and, you know, working its way up the food chain, you know, it's, it's, it's that's called bioaccumulation and, and we right. store, we store toxins in our fat. So I just want to point out to listeners again, that this is such uh, that 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 is the primary reason that the fattier your diet is, you know, whether you're eating fattier cuts of meat or butter or oils, it's super important that the animal's quality of life and and you know how it's raised and how it's you know fed and processed matters. You know, if you're eating ground beef that's 99% lean, uh, you're not getting as much fat as if you're eating butter. So you know, you really want to make sure that your butter is grass fed. Um, right. You know, if you want to take your your chances with you know traditional meats, you could do that with leaner cuts. But you know, I'm not going to recommend that. Uh, but but certainly make sure that the fattier your cuts, uh, or or the more fat you're eating from animal sources, uh, the better quality of life that that animal lived or, or was was raised in. Um, Can I throw in one quick thing on that? Absolutely. So atrazine, which we'll talk about in a minute, but I just want to mm-hmm. throw in because you talked about the the meat, right? Yep. Um, in blood samples from cows, not, not organic cows, not grass-fed cows, just normal mass production cows, obviously, 700,000 nanograms per liter of atrazine they found in the blood samples from these cows. And what they do is they corn feed them, right? Yep. So, and that's where the atrazine is coming in. And again, we haven't even introduced atrazine, so I'm jumping ahead again, but I can't help it, right? I got to yeah. get it in there. I mean, so, it's, a total, so it's a reality. Before we even talk about what atrazine is, give give some context to that level. I mean, repeat that. You said 7,000 nanograms? 700,000 nanograms per liter. So just like when when we measure our blood sugar, we're measuring blood sugar in nanograms per deciliter. That's right. Usually it's deciliter. And it should be between um, like 70 to 100 or, or 80 and 110, depending on who you talk to. And you're saying that this atrazine level is... That's right. Almost, almost uh, 100,000 times higher than that. That's right. And, and here's, here's an even more interesting point. So your natural estrogen level, right? I mean, blood sugar, yeah, you know, that's something. But think about your natural hormones and your estrogen is about 20 nanograms per liter, right? And some people use picograms per milliliter units. And, and when this, so it gets a little confusing, but I translate everything to nanograms per liter just because mm-hmm. I want to make it you know, and, and by the way, those units convert, they interchange picograms per mil, nanograms per liter is the same thing. So 20 nanograms per liter is a man, a man's natural estrogen level. And here, get this, most people don't realize women are also around 20 mm-hmm. up to about 400, depending on the time of the month. Right. So I mean, yeah, they range a lot, but it's not that it's certainly not 700,000, right? That's ridiculous. Yep. Yeah, and, and, you know, that's just atrazine. And you start adding on these other ones like BPA or phthalates or parabens, right? You, and and yeah, then you start you, to see the da- – I mean, that's why the scientists out there now are starting to, you know, raise alarm on this. And that's – yeah, that's shocking to me. I, I had no idea. I've never heard that statistic. Um, definitely make sure you send us that, uh, that link so we can, we can include that in the, in the show notes. But um, so, I mean, at, at levels that high – would, would it be safe to say atrazine is a bigger concern than even something like glyphosate, which I'm sure you hear all of, all about? It is. It's depending. Obviously, it always depends on what you're eating, right? So, 
Yeah, I mean, dose, ma- dose makes the toxin, right? I mean, that's... It, it, it does, but okay. with hormones, right? I mean, we're talking about a real low dose, too. Right. And, you know, the question is, well, how much, how much do you want to alter your hormones? You know what I mean? Right. And then, honestly, some people ask me that, right? They say, well, what, sh- what do I do? And then you kind of list out some things, and then they say, well, like, where should I draw the line, right? Because how extreme do you want to go, especially with plastics, right? And the fragrances. I mean, you need to get shampoo with no fragrance and all this, and, or at least find companies that, you know, list the ingredients like we talk about. And here's the, I think here's one of the ways to think about it. If you've got a propensity for breast cancer, if you've got fertility problems, right? If, you, if you're struggling with obesity, you know what I mean? Like if, if you've got some health problems that are in these certain categories, then yeah, you want to be pretty extreme. And for everybody else, you certainly want to avoid that stuff too, mm-hmm. but you know maybe you don't need to go to quite such an extreme in terms of the plastics, for example, or some of the other ones, right? Like, I think I it's know, one of those. Know. That's that's one of those things where every person has to have their own uh, individual. Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? You you, you, you exist. Yeah, you exist somewhere on that spectrum of, of you know what are your priorities? What's important to you? I mean, you know, I may not have. Uh, issues with with obesity or may not have cancer right now but but i don't want to have to i don't want to wait exactly. until i have those issues to start avoiding these things that's, you know, that's right yeah. if i know these things are going to disrupt my health i'm just going to avoid them you know now um yeah. and that's the right way to think about it i mean but most people don't think that way right they wait until they have the disaster or right right or something scares them i wish more people would think i mean this is what we we're talking about at the very beginning preventative medicine yeah. you, know, you got to think about this because Otherwise, you have the twenty thousand dollar health bill, right? You know, healthcare bill, or, or, I mean, hospital bill, right? And it's a lot cheaper to buy twenty dollar shampoo bottles, right, instead of twenty thousand dollar surgery, right? And and just, I mean, to to throw a product recommendation out there, um, you know, Dr. Bronner's is is something that I use. Uh, it's you know, it's a soap that's it's all natural, and you know, you can use that as a shampoo as a body soap and there's they make a whole host of other products too we've talked about that on a previous episode as well if you guys want to go back and listen to the one with uh dr wolfson the paleo cardiologist we had him on the show so um you know that that came up in that episode as well so um you know it's it's really not hard especially in, in today's world where we have so many brands like a Dr. Bronner's or you have people like uh, Mother Dirt or, or Fatco, uh, who we had on a previous episode that, you know, they're using uh, pasture-raised organic cattle and, and they're, they're providing the, the lard from those to, to do skincare products. And, um, you know, that's what I use for deodorant. I use their stank stuff. Um, you know, so it, it, it's not as hard as it may sound when we say, you know, cut out the conventional stuff. Um, that's right. That's right. Yeah. It, you don't have to go and live in the hills. Yeah. Anymore. So uh, I, I think one that may be really hard for people to cut out uh, would be something like um, uh, laundry detergent. That's right. Uh, I use a brand called Seventh Generation. I don't have any any affiliation to anything that I use right. financially, but I, I prefer that. I mean, this is a little bit off topic in terms of artificial estrogen, but I don't like a lot of the preservatives they sneak into these uh, laundry detergents. And a lot of times they don't list them. They don't list them on the labels again, but it's, it, I like to use detergents with lipases, uh, amylase and protease. That's the three major mm-hmm. right, uh, categories of macronutrient ends breakdown enzymes, right? Mm-hmm. Proteins, carbs, and fats. Right. The problem with those three enzymes, right? Lipase, amylase, and protease, is bacteria love to eat them. And so if you've got a 
a big thing of liquid and you've got those enzymes, you're going to have problems with bacterial infection or, or you know, you're going to have bacteria in there chewing them up and making them use, rendering them useless. So even in a lot of natural companies put those uh, preservatives in there to, to kill those bacteria. But yeah, I mean, a lot of those are hydrophobic and they, they would rather cling to your clothing. But even more importantly, the fragrances do the same thing. You think you're washing this stuff off. And that's, that's true of the soap, too. So you're putting soap on your skin. You know, some things go, don't go through your skin, but certainly artificial estrogen and natural, like hormones do. Right. Because that's just the well, property. We, we, of know they, we know they do because you can put a testosterone patch on yep, your arm yep, for, yep. for hormone replacement there. That, that's that right. We know that the transdermal application works. That's right. And, and yeah, it, it's so frustrating to see, you know, people putting deodorant or putting soaps all over their body, right? Their entire body. And, you know, and then the intestine, right? You have to realize that your intestinal lining is also endothelial cells. So those are skin cells. So your blood vessels, your intestinal cells, they're similar type of cells. I'm not going to say they're exactly the same, obviously, but I mean, categorically, they're classified as endothelial cells. So, you know, you, you eat, you drink, Something with red food coloring, which, by the way, also makes the top 10 list. I keep just kind of getting ahead here. <laughs> but you drink this stuff, and it does have that artificial estrogen impact because it goes through those cells. So let's do this. Uh, go ahead, if you can, just, just from memory, uh, or if you have it, just 1 through 10, go through. Just, just say the 10 so our listeners have it. Uh, for you guys listening, I will post uh, this on the blog post so you can see the, the 10 um, Top and then, and then as you go, after you say these 10, just so we have it for reference, we'll cover uh, the ones that we haven't talked about yet. I've got a list printed here. So it's number one on my list is phytoestrogen. So that's estrogens that plants create. Mm -hmm. And just the other day, just a, I couldn't believe it. I heard a medical doctor say that BPA is a phytoestrogen. And I was just completely, <laughs> completely <laughs> appalled. Yeah. So it's not, so it doesn't, you know, plants, the word phyto means plant in Greek. So plants create, you know, yeah. hormones and they, the ones that act like estrogen are phytoestrogen. Uh, mycoestrogen, number two, mycoestrogen. And uh, there's only one estrogen that fungus, myco, by the way, means fungus. Molds are in that category, molds, fungus. Um, so mycoestrogen, there's only one and it's called xerolenone. Z-E-A, Zira Lino. It's a weird pronunciation, weird word, but it's the only one you have to worry about. But it's bad. They call it, scientists call it immunotoxic, uh, reproductive toxic, you know, all of it. So mycoestrogen, number two. Number three is atrazine. That's the herbicide. Uh, we'll go back over that a little bit more. Number four, triclosan and alkylphenols. I lumped those two together because you find them in soaps. Not fragrances, soaps. So the actual, you know, they actually use it as either antibacterial ingredient or, you know, some like alkyl phenols are, are like a lot of the soaps are created from those chemicals. Um, number five, BP and 4-MBC, that would be benzophenone and 4-methylbenzaldine four, four camphor. And those are the sunscreen artificial estrogens. Uh, and believe me, you go to the store and you find the cheapest sunscreen you can, you will find benzophenone in your sunscreen every time. And you probably will find 4-MBC, 4-methylbenzophenone. And it's crazy because I even find it in hair products and hand soaps. Yeah. So again, we're rubbing that stuff on our skin. I mean, it's just insanity. Illegal in Europe, by the way, benzophenone, totally illegal in Europe. Or maybe it's 4-methylbenzophenone, maybe both. I can't remember, but... 
I know for sure at least one of them is. A lot of these are, by the way. Atrazine, okay, atrazine, completely illegal in Europe. Zero is, zero is allowed, right? Zero nanograms per deciliter. In America, 3,000 nanograms per liter is allowed in our drinking water, right? Atrazine, because we use crazy amounts of it. We use like 100 million uh, pounds per year annually. Mm -hmm. It's the second most used herbicide in America after glyphosate, atrazine. Okay. So, uh, Okay, so we did the sunscreen estrogenics. Number six on the list is red 40 and red number three. Those are the red food coloring estrogenics. So again, uh, they're illegal in Japan. You know, the UK and the European Union allow you to use them, but you have to put this huge label on that says this, pro this product may cause attention deficit in children and maybe some other health problems. And it, I mean, it's like a cigarette pack, right? Yeah. So nobody uses them over there. Right. And and it's because, you know, the science is pretty clear. They're artificial estrogens. We should make them illegal. It's ridiculous to me that we're, you know, we're putting these in medicine, right? We're putting red food coloring in our vitamins and in our drugs. And anyways, so our, that's number six. Are Flintstones gummies that make us healthy because they have more sugar than actual vitamin content? <laughs> that's right. Oh, man. And, and you're talking about the kids, right? Oh, man. So number seven is pear. So that was number six, red food coloring. Number seven is parabens. We talked about that a little bit. The fragrance, the ones you find in fragrance. Mm -hmm. Number eight is phthalates. So that's, like I say, a plastic stabilizer or additive. Number nine, BPA. And then number 10 is birth control with uh, ethyl estradiol. That's EE2. Mm -hmm. uh, because obviously that's an artificial estrogen. That's the only one on the list that doctors actually are out there prescribing to people. And you know, you might say, well, I'm not taking birth control. Well, you actually probably are if you're not filtering your drinking water and if you live in a high population dense region. So that's why I want to bring that one up. Yeah. How does that uh, find its way into our water supply? So people pee it out. So it's, it's you know, an artificial estrogen specifically designed not to break down in your body, mm -hmm. right? Just like these artificial testosterones, some bodybuilders might use or whatever, right? I mean, there's it, organic chemists sit down and they say, okay, how can we design this so your liver doesn't break it down? And then it'll have a, a longer lasting impact, but then you, you end up urinating out that final product and it ends up in the water. And yeah, our, our municipal water supply, we're pretty good at killing bacteria, killing viruses, adding chemicals, this kind of stuff. But remember these artificial chemicals, uh, estrogens, they're not alive, right? So killing them, you know, you, you can't kill them. That's right. It's not even an option. So, and, and it gets, the worst part is they're, they're lipids, right? They're, they can, you can put a little bit of them in, in the water, but um, essentially we're not good at filtering out lipids in the municipal water supply, mo mostly hormones. So, you know, a lot of pharmaceuticals are found in, in your drinking water. And I think the worst ones are these artificial estrogens. And the way to get those out, by the way, is to use activated charcoal. You have to have something with activated charcoal in your filter. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, you know, you can get rid of lead and all these other things fairly easily, but to get rid of the hormones, it's a little bit more challenging. You have to use activated charcoal, and I've used it in my personal lab experiments. I've published papers using activated charcoal. It removes anything hydrophobic, so that includes fatty acids, it includes hormones, it includes lipids, right? So that's how you get rid of the birth control in the water. There's a lot of atrazine in the water in places that are more rural. Right. So you want the same thing. Just just filter the drinking water with make sure it has charcoal. OK. Unless you're doing reverse osmosis or something. Two questions on the on the phyto and mycoestrogens. Uh, on the phytoestrogens. 
I, I know some of the common sources that, that you list are, are things like soy, lavender, even cannabis. Yep. Are they present naturally in those um, plants to a level that we should be concerned with just using those plants? Um, you know, lavender has therapeutic properties. So does cannabis. Uh, a lot of listeners may use either of those to, you know, relax and unwind uh, or, or for, you know, creativity purposes. Uh, yep. Is the level of estrogen something to be concerned about? The only plants that that have really high levels, and I have a study where they went through all the food groups, it's a Canadian study, and they looked at, you know, how many, per 100 grams of the food, right, corn, soy, whatever, 100 different items, how much phytoestrogen does it have? Um, the soy was about 160 um, boy, uh, micrograms per 100 grams, mm -hmm. and the flax was about 300,000, I didn't say 160, I meant 160,000, I can't remember what if I said 160,000 is what they okay. found. Okay. And the flax was over 300,000. Wow. All right. And everything else was below 1,000. Wow. But here's something that's valuable for your listeners is that your gut bacteria can break down these natural phytoestrogens. So they have less of an impact depending on how healthy your gut is. And the lavender stuff. So lavender, if you're, you know, at low levels, you're not going to have any issues. But if you're rubbing it all over your skin, they have, there's a New England Journal of Medicine paper that shows that lavender causes gynecomastia, mm -hmm. man boobs. Mm -hmm. And it's because, they argue it's because it acts like estrogen. It's, acts, it's estrogenic, acting on the estrogen receptor. And there's other studies that have con contested that. So this is still kind of new. But, I mean, the fact that it causes gynecomastia, right, it, it's changing breast tissue. Right is enough for me to kind of raise a red flag. And with the cannabis, there's about 100 studies on the estrogenic properties. So if you're worried about fertility, or, you know, like I say, this some of these other health problems, you want to at least work, watch out for breathing the smoke in. That's probably the most efficient method for, you know, the phytoestrogens in cannabis to be entering your bloodstream. Eating it would be different. And again, that's a relatively new area. So there still needs to be more work done on it. But the soy and the flax, it's pretty clear. And so, especially and especially the soy, in my opinion. Yeah, so safe to, I was going to say safe to say avoid soy if you're worried about right. uh, estrogen levels. That's right, especially okay. because you find it everywhere, right? I mean, they cut the olive oil with it. They're cutting things with it. They're not adding it to labels. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but people know that. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, and if they don't, we'll tell them about it. So, That's yeah, crazy. hopefully. And I guess if you guys are not aware of this, there was a report that came out recently uh, that's what Anthony is referencing, that uh, a lot of the top olive oil companies have been caught uh, cutting their olive oil with uh, soy and canola oil. So, um, yep. Mycoestrogens. How yep. is uh, these, you said these are found mostly in grains. Um, that's right. how, how are these things different from like the mycotoxins that we've heard about before? That's right. So mycotoxin is just a broad word meaning mold toxin. Right? Okay. And when people say, when scientists say myco, the word is derived from Greek, meaning mold, okay. but, but they mean fungus, right? right. So the fungus, right. fungus is a, you know, is a broader category, mm -hmm. so, but I'll just use the word, I might use fungus and mold interchangeably here, but I want people to know that it's, you know, myco means mold, but scientists use it to, to say fungus. Again, broader category. So anyways, uh, so mycotoxin just means any toxin that mold secretes or fungus, right? 
Okay. In other words, aflatoxin, mm -hmm. uh, ochratoxin. There's a whole list of them. Uh, Zearlinone, right? This one that I'm talking about. That's the only mycoestrogen. It's also myco, it's a mycotoxin, right? Okay. And it's regulated as such. So in the European Union, right, I've thrown in a little bit about how there's differences between the EU and the, in America. The EU, the European Union allows mold estrogen, mycoestrogen, between 20 and 350 micrograms per kilogram of food, right? So if you've got, for example, uh, you know, grains that humans are eating, mm -hmm. it might be 20. But if you've got cow, you know, grains for cows, they allow about 350. But whatever it is, 350 micrograms per kilogram is the max allowed limit. Guess what the U.S. has for max allowed limit for mycoestrogen? It's either five times that or there is no, uh, there is no right. cap. That's right. There's absolutely no limit for mold estrogen in the USA. And it's considered immunotoxic, so it causes allergies. And by the way, a lot of these artificial estrogens alter your immune system because think about it, right? I mean, the principle here is think about it as if you were pregnant. You have high levels of estrogen. So what happens? Your immune system changes, right? Because you don't want your body to you know, eat the baby, you think of it as a foreign body. It, and it's a little, like I say, it's kind of a new frontier. We don't quite understand it. Scientists say the immune system when you're pregnant is immune, estrogen is immunostimulative and immunosuppressive at the same time. So how do you, right? How do you, how do you justify that? Well, we don't really know, but it changes your immune system. And, you know, there's all these other problems, right? Like fat. So your body stores fat when you're pregnant as an emergency reserve mm -hmm. more readily than it would for a normal person. All these artificial estrogens, not only, I call it the estrogenic paradox because not only do they store in your fat cells, like we talked about, they cause fat cells, right? So they, it's like a double mm -hmm. problem here with these. And by the way, they do it since your, your audience is fairly scientific. The artificial estrogen works on a protein called P-PAR gamma. It's peroxisome proliferator activated receptor gamma. Huge word, but it's, it's kind of interesting to know about because scientists call it a fat switch. So it's like a light switch. You just turn it on and you get fat, right? Your cells start storing fat. And, and you know, there's a, there's a musk found in cigarettes called tonalide. Um, and it's, it, it, it causes fat but it doesn't work through PPAR gamma. These estrogens do work through PPAR gamma. So, you know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. In this case, that's how they cause fat storage in your body. So again, the point is, it makes your, it kind of makes your body think it's pregnant in certain ways, physiological ways. And, you know, allergies, yeah, you know, infertility, because it's acting on your reproductive organs. Again, a lot of these health problems that you see, right? Breast cancer, you know, it acts on your breast tissue lower te you know, testosterone, depression. Those are kind of the main health problems you see. You mentioned um, that, that it's sort of like flipping on a switch. And I think that's a perfect segue into uh, what, what we also want to make sure we cover going a little bit deeper. There's an epigenetic component to this yep. uh, that, you know, these chemicals cause long-term changes, um, you know, in our own DNA. And, and that can also be passed on to future generations. And, and that's probably uh the scariest thing that's right and that's the reason i wrote the book to be honest i gave a talk about this in florida probably about a year ago and you know it really got me in, you know thinking deeper about this and just actually the talk kind of inspired the book because everybody said man you got to write a book about this because this is really right i mean it's one thing to alter your own health through you know your careless 
exposures to artificial chemicals, but then you talk about passing on infertility. And not only that, you can make it, it can become worse in future generations from your mm-hmm. exposure, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and fat can be passed on transgenerationally. And people think, well, that's just genetic, right? Well, no, it's epigenetic. And that's a bigger problem because that means you can change, you know, you can have, you can be a skinny person, have skinny genes, quote unquote, and then you get exposed to these chemicals and then actually pass on obesity to your children. And that I can, I can give you an analogy maybe for your listeners. Um, the analogy I use in my book for epigenetics is music. And I hope some people have a kind of a grasp on how music works. You, you have these notes on a page, right? And somebody looks at the notes and they just play the keys. So if you have just one note at a time that says, Mary, you know, Mary had a little lamb, right? It's dink, 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 dink. And, and you can pass that sheet music to somebody else and they can play that same song, right? And does that sound like your DNA? So you can pass that on. People can play the same thing. It doesn't really change. You still get the same song. It's super simple and, you know, and it's transferable. Your epigenetics would be notes on top of those notes. So if you play a chord or if you play a couple notes, right? So the song is still the same. It's still Mary Had a Little Lamb, but now you've added some complexity to it, right? And, you know, you can still pass that on, but you can change that without changing the song, right? You still have Mary Had a Little Lamb, but the important point is you're still passing it on. Sort of like uh, if, if Stevie Wonder played it on the piano and Tom Morello played it on a guitar, you'd have completely different versions of the same basic song. That's right. Yep. And both, that's of, both, of like, those, both of those are songs I'd like to hear, but I don't think some of the epigenetic changes are, are things that we necessarily want. At least in this case, yeah. I mean, epigenetic changes, you can have positive epigenetic changes, right? right? You can... Yeah, what are some things that we can do to positively impact uh, epigenetic changes? Yeah, I'm actually writing a book on this. (laughs) And and I think one of the biggest things is a lot of these methylation pathways go through folic acid. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons I do DNA analysis for people is, you know, you can find problems in these pathways that are involved in methylating DNA. Methylation is a mark on top of DNA. I mean, that's technically the definition of epigenetics, marks on DNA. And, you know, those pathways that are involved in doing that. So if you eat healthier, especially, you know, things like folic, methylfolate, not folic acid, but methylfolate, mm-hmm. uh, that's just one example maybe that comes to mind, but that's one way you can improve your epigenetic fingerprint. Okay. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit brief, but I don't want to get too far. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. I mean, I think it's, it's really cool that you analyze DNA for uh, high performers. Um, what all does that entail? Yes. Well, I use the 23andMe uh, kind of system already in place. So you can, you know, I've also done whole genome. So you can have your entire genome sequence, all of your base pairs. That's like 3.5 billion base pairs of code. And I can handle that, right? I, I actually use three different software programs. They're proprietary, but essentially I just look, all I'm looking at is the genes. So we have about 25,000 genes, and that's the, the fragments of DNA that are actually used in your body to make proteins. Um, so those are kind of the, you know, the, the things that are most studied by scientists, your genes. Mm-hmm. And that's what 23andMe sequences. Mm-hmm. So they essentially sequence all 25,000 of your genes. I mean, and that's the valuable information anyway. And they do sure. a real great job. I mean, they have like 99.7% rep, you know, repeatability okay. uh, in terms of accuracy. So that 
it's a great company. And then I analyze it and I say, look, your vitamin D receptor, it has a problem. You need to take more vitamin D or right. Like a lot of things like, like your detox, like your glutathione, one of the enzymes in the glutathione pathway is dysfunctional. So you're going to want to either supplement glutathione, right. Or whatever. Like basically I allow people to strategize individually, not just kind of make generic assumptions about their health, but to say, this is what you personally need yeah. and you want to be especially careful to avoid aluminum because this pathway is involved in aluminum, for example, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, wheels are turning in my head as, as you're talking about this. I've done the 23andMe. I've gotten my results from them, uh, yep. but I would have to admit, uh, if I'm being completely honest, that I'm a little bit underwhelmed yep. um, because what I got back, you know, kind of told me, you know, okay, I'm... You're, I've got, you have brown eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I, you know, I'm my, I know my great grandparents on my mother's side. I know one of them came from Germany. The other one came from Ireland. Uh, yeah. You know, so you know, it came back. It's like you're this percent European, and it's German, and it's Irish, and it's French, and the French is on my dad's side. And I mean, I knew all that. You know, it gave me gave me some cool stuff. Don't get me wrong, but I don't know that it's two hundred dollars worth of yeah. you know information. So what my, my, I guess my, um, my critique on the 23andMe is I have this stuff, but I don't really know what it's telling me. So as you're giving that answer, uh, the wheels that are spinning are maybe, uh, if it sounds like people get the 23andMe test done, they send you the results and you can take it a step further. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Would, would this be something where maybe I can send you my results? You and I could go through it on, maybe we could get you back on the podcast and, and kind of showcase what it is that you do with this information. Um, and you know, let me and my data be an example for other people. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely, you know, you've got it, you got it perfect. I mean, okay. what they give you is so safe and so shallow, right. That, I mean, they've improved a lot in the last couple of years, but still it's inefficient. I mean, it's amazing. I tell people certain things about their health and I mean, obviously it's usually private, but it's uncanny. I mean, people are like, wow, I kind of knew this, but I didn't realize it was in my DNA, right? And yeah. then they see it in their kids. Right. I mean, it, to me, it's, I, I love the, the saying, you know, information without implementation is youth, useless. And, and there's, there is some, some good information in this stuff, but I don't know how to implement all of it. And, and, you know, it sounds like you may have a service that helps people uh, identify, you know, how to take this data, how to program you know, whether it's their diet or their exercise program, because I know that is a component that's, that's listed in 23andMe, uh, you know, all of that stuff to have the most positive impact on the epigenetic front. That's right. And, and honestly, I'll tell you, the future of medicine is epigenetics. You know, the DNA stuff, mm -hmm. people are going to be doing their epigenetic fingerprint in the future. And that's going to be a lot more valuable because you can say the same things, right? You can say you should take more vitamin D or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you can change that and you can track the results. But the problem is right now, I actually contacted a company on California. They do epigenetic full genome sequencing, $18,000 right now. Wow. So, you know, that's obviously inaccessible for most people, but it's, it's, we have to make it more robotic and, you know, and it, it'll become, it'll drop just like the DNA drop from billions of dollars to sequence one DNA. And now you can do it for a hundred, right? Right. Uh, what kind of timeline do you think that'll take? For 20, it to be 20 years, if I had to guess, just just okay. off the top of my head, unless somebody gives me a whole bunch of money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But no, I mean, um, I mean, here's the thing. It, it depends on, you know, the scale, right? Like to do yeah. your whole genome is one thing. 
to just do the genes is a different thing or to just do the important genes that we actually understand right now is a whole different. And for that, maybe five years, right? Because yeah, you know, and we just looked at the genes that we like the ones that are involved in fertility and the ones that are involved in obesity. And I mean, that's what most people want to know anyways. Mm-hmm. And if you just made that 50 bucks and you said, here's the 20 that we know a lot about. Yeah. And, and like, that would be a huge service, I think. And then you can track it, right? 10 years, yeah. you, could, you could change, get off the gluten, yep. check it in a year, right? And get off the artificial estrogens for crying out loud, check it in a year and boom, right? You've got an improvement and you wouldn't and, see an improvement. Yeah. And that, you know, that, that subset of genes that, that we actually understand and know their role is such a small percentage of, right. you know, the total genome. So that's right. Especially epigenetics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's cover one more thing, uh, before we wrap this up for, for this episode. Um, you know, we mentioned this earlier, uh, that, that there is some, some spin or bias on, on certain, uh, experiments and certain research. I mean, obviously we know, um, if, uh, if there's, you know, a conflict of interest, if, if certain studies are being paid for by, uh, people who have a vested interest in the outcome, uh, that's not always easy to see if, if people listening want to read studies, if you read those studies at the bottom of those studies, a lot of times you can see where the funding came from. Uh, you know, if you're reading a study on, uh, you know, the impact of high fructose corn syrup and you see at the bottom that it was paid for by, you know, some agriculture, you know, lobbyist group, you can pretty much assume that there's a conflict of interest, but I'm not sure that that's exactly what uh, you're talking about, that that maybe there's there's some other spin or bias in medical and scientific papers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what, so Marsha Angel, she used to be the New England Journal of Medicine chief editor. She, she literally stepped down after 20 years as the chief editor on the New England Journal because there's been so much corporate influence and in a subtle way, right? So yeah, the, the real obvious stuff, I mean, you can pick that up. And there's a person at New York University, her name is Marion Nestle. And she, at the last time I checked, and I, I have a whole chapter about this in my book, the whole spin and bias and all this, but she, she looked at 168 studies that were corporate funded or in some way influenced by right, a company. And 156 of those 168 were favorable toward the product, right, that the company has. So, I mean, yeah, there, there's clearly cases where, you know, when you find that, you know, that disclaimer at the bottom, they're going to find some favorable outcome. And soy is a great example. That's why I brought it up mm-hmm. in my book. I mean, that's why I have a whole chapter on this. In fact, when I first wrote the book, I thought the editors were going to pull that chapter out because it's a little bit irrelevant almost, right? It's not about artificial estrogen. It's about spin and bias. Right. But in fact, they all liked that chapter the most. So because I have a kind of an inside view, right? I've published peer-reviewed papers in biochemistry, in the biochemistry journal, the journal for fluorescence, all kinds of journals. And here's, there's so many aspects of this. Well, so if you publish a paper in a peer-reviewed journal, okay, um, you, you, you submit it online and you have to select five reviewers to review your paper, right? You do it. And that's almost, that's almost true of all of them. Right. It's amazing. People don't realize that obviously if you have a network of scientific friends, which they all, everybody does nowadays, we travel to these conferences, we get paid by the federal government with our NIH grants and all this to go to Vienna or whatever, like I've done, or, or Colorado, wherever the nicest place you can find is, <laughs> right? And essentially you hang out with your buddies within your field. And I mean, yeah, they're experts in the field, but 
you know, you pick those guys to review your paper and you can imagine what kind of outcome you're going to get. And here's the other aspect. So when you're being funded, right, NIH is the chief source of scientific funding, NIH being the National Institute of Health. So when you write a grant, for the most part in, at academia, uh, people write grants and they send them to the NIH to get funded. That's federal government funding. Um, it's the same problem, right? Like you oftentimes you will know the committee members. And not only that, they see your name on the top of your grant. And that's the most important aspect. And scientists, I've, I've brought this point up when I was doing my PhD. And they say, well, you have to know the credentials of the person whose lab it is. Right? which is just another way of saying, I like the system as it is. Mm -hmm. I want to have the influence of, of my name, you know, when I'm from Harvard or whatever big university, I wanted to say that so people mm -hmm. fund my study because that's what happens. It's not necessarily about merit it, because less than 10% of grants are being funded right now. I mean, it's far less. It might even be, it's probably around 5%. So most of the grants you spend a ton of hours writing get rejected unless you have great political connections and you're politicking, right? Which is kind of ridiculous. So for a professional scientist, for, you know, you shouldn't be focused on politicking, but right. believe me, a lot of them are. Right. And so, I mean, that's just a little example of right, scientific bias, publication bias. And then the third one probably would be uh, uh, just reproducibility. So a lot of times researchers do a study and there was a study done by Bayer and they found 75% of the time they couldn't reproduce the outcome from a scientific published study. So you really have to look at a study and say, okay, this is the first study on lavender and man boobs. Let's see what happens with the next five, right? Right. Or especially what happens where you especially have to be wary is soy research or dairy research or whatever. Anytime there's something that has a product attached to it, that's where you especially just want to be careful. You don't, right. doesn't mean you don't believe anything. You just have to look for multiple studies and try and, because like, for example, I have in my book, I have an example about soy because a lot of people tell you soy is good. And not only will they say it's okay, they'll say it's good because there's papers that say that. They say it's protective against, mm -hmm. you know, your bone strength. And then you read another paper and it says, you know, it's, it's harmful for infertility. It increases your risk for breast cancer. It causes, right? I mean, the, there's like a laundry list. There's about six problems from soy you can point out. So you have to look at those multiple studies. You can't just be selective about one study. Yeah, I mean, you, you could look at one study where they found soy was, quote unquote, protective or, or beneficial, but it's because maybe they were doing soy instead of, you know, horrid factory farmed beef or something. And they say, well, you know, of course, it's, it's better than that. But just because it's better than awful doesn't mean that it's actually a good choice. Uh, right. Another thing that, that I've noticed when it comes to research is that there are a lot of studies that aren't pursued uh, just because there's there's not a major financial windfall uh, right. for yep. people to, to fund them or, or pursue them. Uh, yep. I'm, I'm assuming you've noticed that based on your oh, reaction. Absolutely. Oh yeah, for sure. And 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 then there's always the people that find results, but but they're not meaningful, so they don't publish it. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a lot of times when something is healthy. You know, and that's, you know, that's not really shocking. So you don't publish the finding, right? You just kind of sweep it aside and look for something that's perverse or something that's, you know, right. causing a problem in, in a certain system that you're studying. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Anthony, this has been fascinating. Um, I, I think we've covered a lot. I think we've covered everything that we wanted to go over. Um, just to, to kind of wrap this up for, for you guys listening, 
make sure you go to naturalsex.com. I'm not saying that because we always say it. I'm saying it because on this particular episode, uh, we've talked about a lot of studies um, between record time and publish time. Uh, Anthony and I will get together. We'll make sure we have links to all of the studies that we've mentioned so you guys can find those on the blog post for this. You can pursue uh, you know, any of this stuff. Go down these rabbit holes. We will have... Um, uh, Anthony's list of top 10 estrogens. So you can see that we'll have a link to his book. Um, definitely make sure you guys check that out. If you're interested in this, the book again is estrogeneration, how estrogenics are making you fat, sick and infertile. Anthony, is there anywhere else uh, that you would send our listeners to get more information uh, on you or, or hear more from you like a website, social media, whatever? Yeah, I think the best place is ajconsultingcompany.com. Okay. So yeah, I have this nonprofit, but that's mostly for international med students. So for people in the U.S. who are interested in this, I have a YouTube channel called Chagrin and Tonic, but it's all on that page. It's all on ajconsultingcompany.com, or you can just type ajcco.com, and it'll okay. get you there. Okay, excellent. Um, and then finally, uh, last question, the one that we ask every guest, we want to know your top three tips to live optimal. Good. I, I'll throw you a curveball here, and I'll say homeschooling. Number okay. one, I was, I was actually homeschooled growing up. And okay. obviously for people that don't have kids, you know, that's, it's, I, what I mean by that is you want to, you want to learn to think you want to, you don't want to just go through the process, go through the school system and just spit out answers and, you know, be told what to think. You want to learn how to think for yourself and pursue your passions. Right. And, and so that's, that's the first thing. So in other words, think like a homeschooler, read great, read things from great minds, right? Not mediocre minds, textbooks put together by committees, read things from great minds that are, you know, that are going to essentially put you on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. So, so sort of take ownership of your own education. That's right. Especially okay. in this, especially in our country today. Like and, the, and, and number, especially if you're a parent, number, which I am. And number two, um, I would say to sleep. And I know people hear this, right? That one's not going to shock anybody. But uh, seven hours seems to be the, you know, the kind of the point between not enough sleep and, and enough sleep. So at least get seven hours. And what I can kind of contribute to that discussion is it changes your epigenetics when you're sleeping properly. And you can track it now with these, these Fitbit type trackers. I use the Garmin Vivo Smart version. Okay. And I mean, that's so powerful when I do consulting for people because, you know, it allows you to manipulate things like magnesium supplements and mm -hmm. supplement things and, and kind of play, like get that quality sleep. That's number two. Number three would be uh, avoid artificial estrogen. I mean, you absolutely have to. Yeah. And you have to say that. I have to say that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, Anthony, this has been great. Thank you so much for hanging out with us again, for you guys listening, naturalstacks.com to see the blog post for this tons of links and resources for you guys. Uh, make sure you go to iTunes, leave us a review, let us know how much you like the show and please share this episode with the people in your life who, you know, as you're listening to this, you, you may have thought, man, I wish so-and-so could, could hear this, or, or I, I was trying to tell them this, here it is, you know, share this with those folks. And, and that's how we, uh, again, help more people and get the word out. So, uh, thank you guys for hanging out with us today. We will catch you guys next Thursday. Anthony, thanks a lot, man. Thanks, Ryan.